afternoon. I'm Patrick Ryan of the Tennessee World Affairs Council. This is the February 3rd edition of the Global News Review. I'm joined today by our regular crew, Ambassador Dick Bowers, Dr. Breck Walker, and uh, we're also joined by uh, uh, Austin Travis, who is on our staff at the uh, World Affairs Council this uh, semester. He's a uh, uh, junior at Lipscomb University studying political science and international studies. And he's uh, gotten uh, uh, with us on our staff and working on social media and communications. Uh, today, he has our lead on the uh, discussion of the coup in, uh, in Myanmar. And uh, before we start, and uh, uh, I'll, I'll note that this is Black History Month and we would like to uh, acknowledge that with a tribute to uh, one of America's leading diplomats uh, who really uh, championed international peace and security. And, and we're talking about uh, Ralph Bunch. He was an American political scientist, academic and diplomat who received the 1950 Nobel Peace Prize for his 1940s mediation in Israel. He was the first African-American to be so honored. He was involved in the formation and administration of the, Nas the United Nations and played a major role in numerous peacekeeping operations sponsored by the UN. In 1963, he was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom by President Kennedy. A little more uh, detail on uh, his uh, service uh, to the country and to the international community. He served on the US delegation to both the Washington Conversations on International Peace and Security Organization in 1944 and the United Nations Conference on International Organization in San Francisco in 1945 that drafted the UN Charter. Bunch served on the American delegation to the first session of the United Nations General Assembly in 1946. He then joined the UN as head of the trusteeship department and began a long series of troubleshooting roles. In 1948, he became an acting mediator for the Middle East, negotiating an armistice between Egypt and Israel. For this success, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. He continued to serve at the United Nations working on crises in the Sinai, the Congo, Yemen, Cyprus, and Bahrain in 1970, reporting directly to the UN Secretary General. In 1957, he was promoted to Under Secretary General for Special Political Affairs, having prime responsibility for peacekeeping roles. In 1965, he supervised the ceasefire following the war between India and Pakistan. He retired from the UN in 1971. And we would like to uh, pay our tribute to Ralph Bunch and his contribution to American diplomacy and to international peace and security. Uh, Good, job, Dick? Good job. Oh, Can I give a tip of, that, another tip of the hat to you for, uh, for doing that? That's good stuff. You bet. That's and I would also like to just note there was a foreign service officer named Ed Perkins who died about uh, a month ago in his 90s. He was the first black ambassador to South Africa, appointed by Ronald Reagan. And he came back and then he was the director general of the Foreign Service, which is the highest <laughs> career position in, in the State Department. And I had the honor of uh, having him swear me in when I became ambassador to Bolivia. So uh, ah. Ed was quite a guy. Excellent, and and you know you you mentioned that um, casually, but people need to consider what it meant 
for the oh, United yeah. States to have a, a black ambassador in South Africa during the years of apartheid. And, and so what, he, he, was, he was a pathfinder. And, yeah, and what kind of man he was to have to go into that cauldron and uh, represent the United States in that bastion of apartheid. So sure, sure. Did his job very well. Well, thanks for sharing that, uh, Dick. And uh, let's uh, formally welcome uh, Austin uh, to the show. Uh, we appreciate you jumping in. You've, you're brand new to the staff as an intern. And already you're, you're making your appearance with uh, these uh, illustrious uh, Global News Review uh, characters here. <laughs> thanks for having me. Okay, uh, well, let's jump right in and uh, take a look at our questions, or excuse me, the uh, the topics uh, for uh, this week's brief. Uh, Dick, do you want to uh, do us the, the pleasure? Sure, we're going to get back into COVID-19 and do a global update of uh, how things are going, because it's uh, a mixed bag out there. And then uh, India, Modi and the protest. What is going on in India, and what is Modi doing about it? And finally, Austin is going to tell us what we need to know about Myanmar and the return of the generals and the coup. So those are our three topics. Okay, super. And uh, of course, we have the question of the week. Uh, Dr. Breck Walker, can you uh, help us out I'm, with that? I'd be delighted to. And I'm sure everybody remembers that last week, uh, Dick let slip the answer in his presentation. So I hope he can restrain himself uh, this time. <laughs> The question of the week is, a U.S. Navy carrier strike force sailed through the Bashi Channel between the Philippines and Taiwan to demonstrate freedom of navigation in these waters against claims by China of sovereignty of most of the maritime region, militarizing many of the Thaili Islands and uh, atolls. And the possible answers are A, Strait of Taiwan, B, Senkaku Islands, C, Yellow Sea, or D, South China Sea. And we will have the answer at the end of the program. Thanks, Pat. Terrific. Okay, well, let's uh, jump right into our, our first topic here, which is the uh, global uh, COVID uh, situation. And we were, we were doing uh, these COVID uh, updates uh, almost every week over the summer. And it got to the point where the, uh, the news coverage uh, was uh, so comprehensive and, and blanketed uh, the news uh, throughout the, uh, the rise of you know, the second wave of, uh, of COVID that we, uh, uh, we backed off a little bit. But I think there's a bit enough developments in, uh, in what's going on with uh, COVID that we uh, should devote a couple of minutes uh, to just talking about some of the, uh, the global issues uh, connected uh, with COVID. Uh, we'll take a, a quick look at the uh, stats here and um, uh, the numbers are, are stupefying in, in the size here. And we see these flashed up on TV, but uh, it's, it's really staggering to uh, consider it. And I, I think it, it really was uh, driven home on the night before inauguration when uh, there was a ceremony uh, on the mall in Washington with uh, lights and the, uh, and, and the number, the, the flags, and, and that whole display was really... Uh, uh, a touching uh, point of, of mourning for the American deaths. But if you look worldwide, uh, two and a quarter million deaths in the last year from uh, COVID-19. And uh, interestingly, the, the American number is about 25% of the global figure, even though the United States uh, population accounts uh, for just about uh, a 4% uh, 
of the global uh, population. Uh, we can uh, take a look at the new cases being charted. This is uh, data as of today. Uh, the, the daily new cases uh, hit a peak in uh, December and showed a decline, but uh, the, uh, the daily deaths have not uh, uh, trailed off uh, commensurate with the number of cases. And that suggests uh, the issue that uh, uh, some of these new uh, mutations of the coronavirus, the COVID-19, are becoming uh, more deadly, uh, even though the cases may be declining a little bit. So uh, let's, let's talk uh, just a little bit about some of the issues uh, going on um, in, in the global uh, perspective. Uh, January was the deadliest month of the pandemic in the United States, with more than 95,000 COVID-19 deaths reported uh, in January alone. Uh, and that contributes to the 450,000 or so um, for the duration of the pandemic. Uh, there's an investigation going on in uh, China by the World Health Organization. Uh, they have uh, researchers who are uh, looking into the origins of the pandemic um, now that uh, uh, the Chinese have uh, amazingly a, a year into the, the process here uh, lifted the restrictions on them going in and, and doing an investigation. So they're, they're looking for vital clues into uh, the source of the, of the initial uh, infections and, and how it uh, spread so quickly. Uh, another highlight is uh, in, in Western Australia, they're in a a five-day lockdown. Uh, lockdowns are are uh, across much of Europe. Uh, the United Kingdom is in a lockdown. Um, they uh, they experienced a very uh, dramatic climb in infections and deaths with a, a new variant uh, from the UK, and that uh, that has spread. That mutation has spread and been discovered around uh, a number of states uh, in the United States. Um, on the, uh, the, the contagious nature of the COVID-19 uh, virus, um, uh, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is the uh, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, said the other day that uh, if, it, that the, uh, if you're reinfected with COVID-19, there's, uh, if you, excuse me, if you've been infected with COVID-19, there's a very high rate of infection with the new variants these new mutations uh, that are coming from places like uh, the UK, South Africa, and Brazil. So this is you know, really uh, a global issue that uh, we can't tackle without global cooperation. So it's, it's good to see that the United States is returning uh, to better participation in the World Health Organization. Uh, Fauci went on to say that uh, if it becomes dominant, the experience of our colleagues in South Africa indicate that even if you've been infected with the original virus, that there is a very high rate of reinfection to the point where previous infection does not seem to protect you against reinfection, at least with the South African variant. That's the one we know most about. Um, he added that uh, we need to get as many people vaccinated as quickly as possible. And when vaccines become available to individuals, please take the vaccine, even though there is a diminished protection against the variants there's enough protection to prevent you from getting serious disease, including hospitalization and death. So vaccination is critical, uh, Fauci points out. So again, the, uh, the WHO team is, uh, is in uh, Wuhan and they're in investigating the source. Uh, they indicate WHO said they're having very good uh, discussions around that. Uh, they've been productive with the Chinese counterparts. Uh, they're visiting hospitals and they've had a good uh, visit 
uh, to the market where uh, presumably the wet market in the central city of Wuhan, uh, where they where uh, the general belief is the uh, the COVID-19 uh, started. On the vaccine front, uh, on the international dimension, uh, we've uh, we've briefed about the uh, uh, the organization called Covax, uh, C-O-V-A-X. It's a uh, vaccine sharing facility uh, that was produced uh, in alliance with the World Health Organization, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness, and the UN Children's Fund. Uh, the COVAX uh, vaccine sharing facility has allocated at least 330 million doses of COVID-19 vaccines for poorer countries and will aim to deliver these and many millions more in the first half of 2021. In all, there are 190 countries that have joined COVAX. Uh, the United States hadn't until uh, the Biden administration uh, moved to, uh, to get involved there. So we're now part of COVAX, which is a uh, basically a subsidiary of the World Health Organization designed to increase dissemination of vaccines in the poorer countries. And uh, there's, there's been a lot of uh, conversation about this in the past uh, week or two that uh, uh, the, the poorer countries not getting enough vaccines is a direct problem for the United States. This isn't something that, you know, we can uh, worry about getting vaccines here and not be concerned about the, the rest of the world. Uh, if it takes several years for COVID uh, to be diminished to the point where it's not the uh, persistent uh, pandemic that it is now, uh, we're gonna see more of these mutations appear uh, from different countries where the, the uh, vaccines uh, were not uh, generally available. In the, uh, the US, uh, more Americans have received at least one dose of a COVID-19 vaccine than have tested positive for the virus an early but hopeful milestone in the race to end the pandemic. As of Monday afternoon, 26.5 million Americans had received one or both doses of the current vaccine, according to the Bloomberg vaccine tracker. Since the first US patient tested positive outside of Seattle a year ago, 26.3 million Americans have tested positive for the disease. A, uh, a concerning uh, note is the, uh, the Center for Disease Control uh, released data this, uh, this week that only 5.4% of coronavirus vaccine recipients were black. Uh, the first analysis of how vaccines were, were being given out among different demographic groups. So that's a concerning statistic that uh, not, all, uh, not all of us are, are uh, included in, in the, uh, the robust uh, distribution of of viruses and uh, that's something that uh, needs, needs to be uh, tended to. So I, I would just suggest that people continue to keep track of, uh, of the news. Uh, there's a lot going on here, a lot to be concerned about, about the uh, development of mutations um, that uh, are finding their way in, into the United States. I've heard that there might be one in uh, Los Angeles, a mutation that's uh, come from uh, infections there. So the, uh, the mutations are a concern. The vaccine distribution rate is a concern. Uh, the good news, uh, folks, is that uh, we do have vaccines. Uh, there appear to be a, a number of uh, effective and safe vaccines that are making the rounds. And uh, people are getting called up and getting, as the Brits would say, getting their jabs. Uh, Ambassador Bowers, I think you uh, just got your second jab. You're a, a two-timer. second one on Sunday. And I highly recommend everybody get theirs when they can, like there's a line. So 
there's a process by which we're taking care of different categories of people. But as soon as your name is called, I recommend you getting it. And I, a, a bad note on the news, Pat, I don't know if you guys saw, there was a group of anti-vaxxers, people who do not believe in vaccinations, who shut down the Los Angeles vaccination point you know, wouldn't let people drive in. And so uh, you know, yeah. it's, it's crazy. Yeah, uh, no, no explaining uh, that kind of stuff. Yeah. All right, well, let's uh, move on to uh, India. And we have uh, our, uh, Breck, you're becoming a, a South Asian specialist. <laughs> well, hardly, uh, but uh, hey, before I get into India, Pat, I just wanted to confirm uh, or, or not confirm the rumor with Dick that after two shots, uh, he will be broadcasting next Wednesday from Tootsie's Orchid Lounge downtown. Actually, <laughs> <laughs> if I was gonna do that, it'd be from Seattle. <laughs> My favorite watering <laughs> hole in Seattle. <laughs> you know, the bad news, the other bad news for me is that I'm, I'm, I'm fine, but our, uh, my daughter in Florida has come down with COVID and her husband um, has it. They have three kids. One of them has it, but is basically asymptomatic. The other two have tested not positive. So we're kind of monitoring that situation. Best wishes to them. Thank you. It's, it's tough when you have uh, you know, a large family at home and you've got to figure out segregation and, yeah. and that whole mess. All right, Breck, you've, you've talked to us about uh, China and India uh, having fistfights on the and explain, explain how come you know anything about Tootsie's Lounge. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's, that's for another that's, time, I think. Uh, <laughs> oh, come on, Dick. That's, that's, a, that's a family friendly uh, that's true. Op operation here. Now, Pat, this right. is, as you mentioned, this is the second time in the last three or four months that we have, that India has been on the GNR uh, radar screen. We reported last year on a brief military confrontation between India and China over a long-standing border dispute in the, uh, in the Himalayas. So India is back now. And as everyone knows, India is the second most populous uh, country in the world with about 1.4 billion people, 80% uh, or so of which are Hindu, and 15% or so are, uh, of which are Muslim. And despite that small percentage, India does have the third largest Muslim population in the world after Indonesia and Pakistan in aggregate numbers. Now, it's the world's largest democracy, though at times a tumultuous one, but uh, I thought about that and I thought, well, of course, the same can be said about the US nowadays. Uh, we're a little bit of a tumultuous democracy, but. Uh, India has been an increasingly important relationship uh, for the United States. Uh, in terms of trade, India is a top 10 trading partner. And in terms of geopolitics, India uh, has become a major defense partner of the United States and has been so across the last three presidential administrations. Uh, since, the, since the George W. Bush years, the U.S., the United States, and India have developed a strategic military relationship aimed essentially at counter countering Chinese influence in Asia. India has access to our to some of our defense technology. We share intelligence with each other. We are engaged in joint efforts in counterterrorism, and our militaries conduct uh, joint military uh, exercises. Now, the leader of India is Narendra Modi. He's been prime minister since 2014. He's the leader of the Bharatiya Janata 
party, Nationalist Party, Hindu Nationalist Party, the BJP, which is what I'll refer to it from now on. Uh, and Modi has stood for modernization of the economy, although many uh, commentators have suggested that Trump and Modi are some to some degree cut from the, the same cloth, that both are populist and nationalist leaders, that both like to energize their bases with big rallies, that both have outsized personalities, and both are sort of wedge-issue politicians. They seek support along religious and cultural uh, lines. And Modi, in the recent past, has been criticized in the Indian press as well as world press for enhancing the power of the BJP in non-democratic ways and for taking steps that might be interpreted to be an attempt to marginalize the Muslim population uh, politically. Uh, but what I want to talk about just for a couple of minutes is this political misstep that Modi may have made over the past sef uh, several weeks that has put him in very hot water with Indian farmers. In September, Modi and his party pushed through three laws in parliament that were designed to modernize the agricultural markets in India, to make them more competitive and to remove government subsidies and effectively to reduce costs for Indian uh, consumers and to make Indian agricultural products more competitive on world markets. Now, most farmers in India have for the past more than 50 years sold much of their agricultural product to these government-sanctioned marketplaces at guaranteed minimum prices that often have been prices that were above the market. And the laws passed in September threatened to remove those price supports in the future and, and uh, pave the way for farmers to sell directly to private business. They don't have to go through these government marketplaces. They could sell directly to grocery chains or to uh, uh, corporate uh, wholesalers cutting out these uh, uh, government mandated markets uh, as, a, as a middleman. Now, Mo the Modi government argues that these steps will make India more agriculturally efficient by lowering cost and attracting private investment to the industry. But India's farmers say, and I think with some, with some justification, that these reforms are gonna drive down prices and reduce their already uh, very low incomes. So India has roughly 150 million farmers. That's greater than 10% of the population. And two thirds of those are very small farmers farming on less than two acres. And farmers may be the most significant voting bloc uh, in India. And apart from those who own their own land and farm, probably half the population works in an agriculture related uh, capacity. So farming is a big darn deal uh, in India, no doubt about that. And this, le this legislation that I mentioned that passed in September, it's fomented the, the largest protest since Modi has been prime minister. Mm -hmm. They've gone on now for more than six months and they have greatly intensified in the last three months and particularly over the last couple of weeks. There was a nationwide sympathy strike that occurred in late November. And then the farmer unions hit upon the tactic of let's go to Delhi. That's their, uh, uh, that's the, the tactical password. Let's go to Delhi. And tens of thousands of farmers came to Delhi in uh, December and January to protest. And they are today camped on the city's uh, outskirts. And we have some uh, photos of that. The uh, local police have tried to remove them with tear gas and batons and water cannons uh, to no avail. And an impasse has developed as, bo as both sides have dug in, literally, that farmers have barricaded themselves with trenches and shipping containers and the like to protect them from, uh, uh, you know, from police uh, assault. Talks have been underway between the farmers and the government. 
The government has gone so far as to propose suspending these laws for 18 months, but the farmers, at least to date, are having nothing to do with that. They want the three laws repealed. And the situation has been worsening, as I mentioned, in the last week or 10 days. Last week, thousands of farmers uh, in, in the Delhi area held a parade driving convoys of tractors and trucks through Delhi, and the parade turned violent at times. And there were protesters that stormed the famous Red Fort, <coughs> excuse me, in Delhi, installing farmer union flags on the ramparts and uh, having photo ops and uh, so forth. Uh, according to the BBC, in that assault, one protester died, more than 300 police officers were injured, more than 200 protesters were detained, including, according to the Human Rights Watch, eight journalists. Now, as well, the Indian government has closed down hundreds of Indian Twitter accounts, including those belonging to activists and uh, Bollywood celebrities and so who, are, who are tweeting in support of the farmers, and the government closed down those accounts for more than 12 hours on Monday because the government said those accounts were being used to incite violence. Now, the protest is gathering world attention. Uh, and I'm just going to cue Pat to play a Rihanna song here, but Rihanna tweeted support for the farmers yesterday, uh, as has uh, Greta Thunberg, the climate, the young teenage climate activist, as has Mina Harris, the, the niece of Vice President uh, Kamala Harris. So it's garnering world attention uh, and the impasse seems to be holding for the moment. So why does all this matter outside of India? Well, it matters first and foremost as a humanitarian and human rights issue. Uh, Modi does seem to be taking a more and more aggressive approach towards these protesters. We'll see where that goes. Secondly, it matters because India is a US ally and we don't want to see them in turmoil. And uh, thirdly, it matters as an economic issue on a global scale. India provides roughly 70% of the world's spices. It's the leading exporter of basmati rice and milk, and it's the world's second largest producer of grains and fruits and vegetables after China. And this, this confrontation between the BJP, Modi, and the farmers, it raises two issues, I think, uh, that I think face every country uh, in the world today, or almost every country. One is the age-old issue of how do you reform an how do you reform an economy in ways that lower cost for all, but in so doing you are going to significantly hurt those who work in those industries that were previously protected or subsidized. What do you do about that? I mean, it's a political issue as much as an economic issue, and because it's a political political issue, my bet would be that the farmers, in some form or fashion, uh, at least in the intermediate term in India, probably win this battle. But the second issue concerns the use of social media to facilitate protest. Now, in one sense, in my mind, social media is a tool, has, has become a tool that can enhance the voice of the people, that it, it, it promotes free speech and, and aids political movements trying to right wrongs. Uh, and that's certainly the good thing about it. But on the other hand, social media also, it seems to me, is a means for a relatively small slice of the citizenry to gain a much louder voice than its numbers would justify. And in that sense, social media can be used to generate less than democratic outcomes uh, as well. And in the same way, social media can be weaponized. It's a more effective way to organize, to destabilize. And it's a dangerous weapon for demagogues and leaders of the radical fringe on both left and right. So uh, 
uh, Pat and Dick and Austin, the modern world has its challenges and it will be very instructive to see how Modi maneuvers in this current crisis. A great report, uh, Breck. Uh, I think uh, you've identified a number of important issues. Um, I, I'm, I'm struck by the, the paradox of social media uh, being used as a tool uh, for insurrection in Washington. Uh, clearly, the organizers of the attack on the Capitol were communicating via social media. Uh, Twitter took down a number of accounts in, in response to that. But you're right, where, how do you, how does uh, somebody who's got their finger on the, the Twitter switch decide whether a, uh, a protest in Tahrir Square in Cairo where democratic forces are protesting a tyrant uh, what's the qualitative difference when there's a, a protest in, in a democratic country that uh, you know, may, may challenge the government? So it, it's, that, that's a tough question. I, I'm not sure what the answer is on yeah. how, that, how that's going to come around. Uh, it wouldn't surprise me to, for there to be a movement among all different kinds of governments to in some way moderate or modulate uh, uh, social media uh, disseminators like Twitter. Well, Dick, you know, um, uh, with your South American background, you, you probably are familiar that anytime there's a coup, the first place that's taken over is the radio station or the TV station, that uh, the, the, uh, the means to communicate among the masses is, is really the, the, uh, the prize, not necessarily the the uh, the castle or the the you know the ruling uh, regime's uh, domain, but uh, to capture the methods of communication. Uh, yeah. Breck, I, I'm I'm struck by uh, the magnitude of the problem and, and uh, the classification of it as a big darn deal. Um, that uh, that puts it into a, a whole different perspective. I I'm, I recall uh, President Biden when the ACA was approved. He, I think he uttered those words to Barack Obama. There was a, a big darn deal or, or words that affect. Well, just okay. about, I want to say one <laughs> other thing, Pat, if it was okay, that uh, one example of the power of social media is Twitter taking uh, Trump, uh, taking away his Twitter, Twitter account. I mean, there is deadly silence out there uh, uh, in t relative to the influence that he used to wield in the media and among his supporters and so forth. And uh, taking him off Twitter's had a huge impact so far, yeah. uh, in my mind. And uh, you know that that can be <laughs> that you, you you don't really know what to think about that because that could certainly be. I think you could defend uh, maybe Trump not having a, a a Twitter feed for a while, but that sure could be abused fairly quickly. And there are plenty of people who think that that's abuse right there. So uh, it's a, it's as you said, it's a very difficult question. And uh, I'm, I'm also struck by uh, the, uh, the international reaction, uh, Thunberg and uh, who was it, Rihanna? Rihanna. Uh, and, and yeah, you'll need to tip me next time so we can cue up <laughs> the, uh, the, appropriate, the appropriate music. We did pretty well keeping up with Tony Blinken last week. <laughs> <laughs> All right, um, Austin, you've, you've uh, I had a chance to watch uh, these guys do it. Now it's uh, your turn. We'll uh, turn uh, the floor over to you to, to tell us uh, what's going on in Myanmar. Uh, kind of a bolt out of the blue. Shoot, floor's yours. Yeah, thank you. Um, so to really understand what's going on here, we titled it The Return of the Generals. So we need to go back 
1962, which was the first time that the military in Myanmar um, took over in a coup. Um, they ruled pretty much um, up until 2000, uh, the early 2000s with an iron fist. Um, in 1990, they, were, they held some free elections um, and the National League for Democracy, the NLD, won those, um, led by Aung San um, Suu Kyi, which is um, um, she's pictured here. Um, she is a icon in Myanmar. She's enormously popular. Um, she was placed under house arrest um, after these elections, um, and she was in, uh, almost kept there for almost 20 years or more um, until they started um, loosening up. Um, so in 2008, in preparation for the liberalization um, that they were going to, to put in place, the military rewrote the constitution to ensure that they would have um, a significant amount of say, that they would not be um, run by a civilian um, in the event that a civilian government did take over. So one of the things that they did was 25% of all seats in the national parliament and all state legislatures were um, or are reserved um, for appointees by the military. Um, the top general in the military gets to appoint the first vice president and the ministers of the defense or of defense, home affairs, um, and border affairs um, to make sure that, that, that again they don't have anybody in any remote way overseeing them. Um, and they also included a provision that most people agree specifically targeted Suu Kyi um, to make sure that she can never become president. She lived for a time in the UK. She had a, had a child there. And they included a new provision that saying that the president could never, well, that um, no one who um, has a foreign-born child could become president, which obviously applies directly to her um, and will keep her out of the presidency until that is removed. Um, they also started their own political party so that they could run for seats in addition to having the 25% guaranteed that they have. Um, and so in, in the 2010s, they started loosening up a little bit. They released some, some um, political prisoners, including Suu Kyi. Um, and in 2015, they held their first free elections um, and the NLD won a massive landslide. Um, and so even though they had a, uh, the majority in both houses of the national parliament, they still, as I said, could not really function completely as an independent government. Um, she cannot become president, which is elected by the parliament. So the NLD created a new post for her, the state, state um, council position that is a de facto prime minister um, so she gets to help run the day-to-day -day operations of the, of the government. Um, but again, the military is still operating on their own. They're very secretive. Um, no one really knows outside of their organization. No one really knows much about what, what goes on there. Um, and under Suu Kyi's um, premiership um, was whenever her international star began falling. Um, the Rohingya genocide began in 2017. Um, and the this is where the, the Burmese military effectively pushed over 1 million um, Rohingya Muslims um, out of a Northern um, state in Myanmar into Bangladesh where they're now being um, housed um, until they can move back hopefully. Um, and she remained silent throughout almost all this with the, a notable exception. Um, she went to the Hague um, to one of the international courts there and defended the government um, and the military um, against what had been done against the Rohingya. Um, so this is where the international uh, um, community began really questioning whether or not she deserved the Nobel Peace Prize that she had um, been given while she was under house arrest. So this brings us to the 2020 elections last November. Um, the NLD already had a huge majority um, and they gained seats. Um, they won 83% of the vote 
um, nationwide. Um, and the military's party, the USDP, um, decreased um, their, their seat share. Um, and after this, the military began um, spreading allegations of widespread fraud, corruption, um, that have been unilaterally dismissed by the um, Burmese Election Commission as well as international observers. And in the past week, the military has suggested that they could suspend the constitution. Um, so this brings us to the events of um, the morning of February 1st. Um, this was supposed to be the day that Myanmar's parliament would take office for the first time after the elections in 2020. Around 5.30 a.m. local time, um, re um, reports began emerging that high-level NLD officials had been arrested, including the president of Myanmar, uh, the state councilor, Su Chi, um, all state chief ministers, um, and they have, have also um, detained um, key government ministers, the electoral commissioners from the, L um, from the NLD, and speakers of parliament um, at both the state and national levels. Um, and they also arrested hundreds of um, members of parliament who have since been released and given 24 hours to leave um, the capital, um, which is where this photo is. That's the road leading to Myanmar's parliament building. It's been blocked off by the military. Um, and um, high level officials are being kept under house arrest. Um, and today they uh, um, unveiled official charges against the president and state councilor um, to give a veneer of legality to what had um, um, to what has gone on. So they charged Su Chi with um, possession of an illegally imported walkie-talkie. Um, and um, the president was charged with violating the country's natural disaster management law. Um, both could be held without even appearing before court until the middle of this month, February 15th. Um, and then, um, for example, Su Chi's, if she's found guilty, um, her um, charge carries with it a maximum of three years in prison. Um, and so the first vice president who I mentioned is appointed by the military is, um, became president. They shut down um, internet outages. This goes along with what Dr. Walker was saying earlier. Um, they, you, they shut down social media, um, even cell service. So that way people couldn't organize um, to protest what, what, what had happened. Um, so in an announcement on state TV a little bit later, the military, um, this is the top general and then in the background is a picture of the announcement. Um, they, did, they announced that they had declared a state of emergency um, and the acting president placed the top general in charge as the state leader. Um, he dismissed all 24 um, or all 24 NLD government, government ministers have, um, and has named his own government as well as a council to help him oversee um, the country. Um, they announced that they would hold, hold power for one year and that they and, and in that time they would hold another round of what they said would be free, open, multi-party elections, but um, they did not provide a timeline for when that would be happening. Um, so they've had what they called free elections before, before they opened up, but they um, did not allow certain parties to run. And that's probably what I would expect to happen um, in this case. Um, as far as the reaction among the Burmese people, um, residents immediately ran to stock up on supplies to pull cash from their ATMs, um, which led to bank services um, being suspended because the banks did not have access to internet to do those transfers. Um, the NLD also, also issued this statement um, that Su Chi had written. They said before she was detained in, in anticipation of being detained, um, she called on supporters to reject the coup, to protest, 
and said that um, the military was trying to put the government back or um, the, um, the Burmese people back underneath the military um, dictatorship. Um, and also this morning there were um, reports emerging that, um, um, that um, many medical um, workers were refusing to work under the military um, and they were walking around wearing red ribbons, which is the color of the NLD. And obviously that's gonna have some serious um, implications with, with the ongoing COVID pandemic if um, their military, I mean, if their uh, medical workers are not working. Um, as far as the international reaction, I've given a few quotes just from different world leaders. Um, it, it's important to note that the UK is um, the current um, president of, of the UN Security Council. They called a emergency session yesterday um, they were going, they were circulating a presidential statement, not a resolution that took action, but just an opinion of what the Security Council thought was going on um, that would have called for the return of democracy, the release of political prisoners, um, and condemning the actions. And um, presidential statements need all 15 UN um, Security Council members to agree to it, and both China and Russia so that they would have to send the statement back to their capitals, effectively killing it. Um, and um, Xi Jinping, the president of China, um, and China itself has not condemned the coup. They've called on the country, I mean, on everyone to respect the constitution. Um, and he has called Myanmar since the coup, a friendly neighbor. Um, the military has always been more friendly with China than the people at large have. The Burmese people are very anti-China, um, which is part of the reason that the military started opening up to liberalization. They were pursuing several um, deals, projects with China um, that the people just were not having any of it. Um, and that um, caused was was one of the reasons um, that caused them to loosen up on um, power. That's that's a uh, terrific uh, presentation, uh, Austin. Thanks for that. We're uh, we're concerned about uh, a, a lot going on in that part of the world, gentlemen. Any. Uh, I have a I have a question, Pat. I mean, Austin, you, first you did a great job, good work, uh, and but the question is, why did this happen now? Why why I mean, the military basically were were stayed in charge. Why get rid of the shadow government? I think um, it's pretty clear that the military was afraid of what um, she might do. Um, it's obvious she's very popular. Um, and she's made it clear that she wants to amend the constitution so that she can become president so that the military is civilian run. Um, and they don't want um, to, to give that up, um, to give up their independence, to give up their secrecy. Um, and a lot of, uh, there's, there's lots of um, information um, pointing to the fact that this, the level of support that she got in, in the 2020 elections was just took the military by surprise they were not expecting that level of support for her um, and that kind of scared them, kind of spooked them, which is what um, caused them to do that. Um, so I think that it really just comes down to, they were afraid of what she might do or might try to do um, in her second term as state chancellor or a state counselor um, that would loosen the military's um, grip on the country. Austin, I want to jump in too and say uh, that was a fascinating presentation. Thanks for that. And I had a double question, if it's uh, if it's okay. So, what does all this mean, do you think, for U.S.-China relations? And what, in fact, what will the U.S. response be? Uh, do you think coming up? So, I think um, this obviously opens up a brand new um, 
window for or um, yeah window for a U.S. China rivalry in the region. Um, for the U.S., I think it comes down to the big question is going to be whether or not we sanction or whether we, whether we take some alternative action. Um, the State Department has labeled this a coup. They did that yesterday and has said that they would consider sanctions as well as other options. Um, but the fact is that sanctions only work whenever will only really work whenever everyone applies those sanctions and follows them, especially those neighbors to that country targeted. Um, and China is, by all expectations, not going to apply those sanctions, not going to follow the U.S.'s lead. Um, and in that case, Myanmar and the military leadership will do exactly what they did under the last um, um, junta, um, which is turn to China for everything that they can't get from the West, um, grow closer with them. So I think the question for the U.S. is going to be, will we accept the risk that maybe we have a temporarily or a temporary um, time span where Myanmar grows closer with China on the expectation or hope that um, the, the people of um, the country will push back against that like they did last time or even stronger, um, which could lead to a stronger U.S.-Burmese um, relations under a more um, de um, democratic government, um, um, government. So it's really going to come down to whether or not we want to take the, ga um, the gamble um, of if um, sanctions would be worth it, if they would be effective, um, or if they would have, um, or um, if they would essentially backfire on us um, and lead another country to, to go across, uh, um, closer with China in a region that has become um, increasingly important for the U.S. and its allies. Thanks, uh, great, great points. Austin, we have a question from uh, Jonathan. Uh, he asks, uh, what do you think the military coup in Myanmar means for the future of the Rohingya people? And uh, there's been reports recently that the Rohingya, the, the Bangladeshis, uh, have been moving them to an island uh, where mm -hmm. they're susceptible to cyclones. And uh, it's, it's really a terrible situation there. But what, what's your take on, on the, the future relationship there after the ethnic cleansing and all? I, I don't, I mean, I think if it was bad under a civilian, civilian government, um, it's gonna be even worse under military government. Um, they were, I mean, the military was the one doing these. Um, and there's different theories about why Su Chi remained silent for the most part. Um, and one of them is that she didn't want to risk angering the military um, by opposing them publicly. Um, and so I think if they are in power unchecked, um, it's only going to get worse. I know I had seen that um, the Bangladeshis had um, urged the new government. Uh, well, they, had, they hadn't condemned it because they didn't want to anger them government that might be in power um, and affect their ability to repatriate some of the um, refugees. Um, so I think, I don't think it's going to get any better for them as long as the military is in power, as long as they hold any um, significant power as they do under this constitution. Mm -hmm. Well, let me uh, just share, if I can, uh, briefly a uh, another uh, map to consider here. And this is the Belt and Road Initiative of uh, China. And you can see that um, uh, there's an extensive network, an overland network that goes through Myanmar and connects uh, China with the Bay of Bengal, uh, mm -hmm. a, a vital uh, 
infrastructure connection. So what goes on in, in Myanmar is, is certainly of uh, interest in, uh, in Beijing. Absolutely. Uh, excellent stuff. Uh, really interesting uh, things going on in the world that uh, uh, you just don't get in the media other than the Global News Review. So uh, well done, <laughs> uh, folks. And, uh, and uh, we'll uh, continue to, to bring these, these kinds of things. Any last thoughts? Uh, we'll go around the Around the yeah, I had I had the I had the pleasure of uh, going to that country when it was still Burma, and Rangoon rather than Yangon, and you know, um, and it is a beautiful, beautiful place, and it's it's large. I mean, I didn't get it uh, just around the capital city area, but at the time I was there, the economy was so bad in the in the sticks, and one of the reasons I went there was to try to figure out whether it was appropriate and proper for the embassy staff, American embassy staff who had diplomatic community to be selling their trash to the Burmese because a glass bottle or a piece of tin foil all had monetary value. And so the question is, you know, is, is this appropriate for an American diplomat to be out there selling trash to everybody? And the answer was, um, as long as they didn't get too greedy anyway. But it's a beautiful place. Rick, you've been there as well, is that right? Yeah, no, I'd second that. And uh, probably as everybody knows, Myanmar, I think, is 80% plus Buddhist. And yeah. so it's known in particular for its fantastic uh, Buddhist temples, both inside and outside uh, Yangon. And it's a wonderful place when things settle down there and hopefully get back to more democratic, uh, to a more democratic situation, it's a wonderful place to uh, visit. And real quickly, I was there with some students and one of the places we went was, uh, uh, was a temple school, I guess you'd call it. And things were so poor in the countryside uh, that there was a waiting list for families to basically give their young children to uh, Buddhist monks in these temples uh, who would live and eat there for years and potentially forever in religious training. And the family's situation was that that was the only way, or we were told at least, that was the only way that they could be really comfortable that their kids were going to get fed in many instances. Well, um, an interesting country and hopefully uh, we can see a return to uh, civilian rule, at, at least quasi-civilian rule, because it clearly, uh, as Austin mentioned, the military never really gave up its hand in, in what was going on. Uh, Yangon was formerly Rangoon, uh, the British-controlled uh, Burma, which is now Myanmar. Uh, Austin, what's what's the present capital? They moved the capital from Yang Yangon, right? Yeah, the military a few years ago built a whole new capital in the middle of the jungle um, called Neputal um, that has huge, I mean, like whenever it was opened, I mean, like four or five lane highways and there was just nobody, nobody there. Um, but they had- Myanmar is Brasilia. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. A pur purpose-built capital. Well, yeah. fascinating part of the world. Uh, we have uh, lots going on. We, uh, next, next week, we will be talking with uh, the Kurdistan Regional Government representative to the United States, uh, Representative uh, uh, Abdul Rahman. She's coming uh, to us via Zoom from Washington. 
Uh, we have a, a terrific relationship with the, uh, the office there. We've taken our students uh, to visit and, and had uh, uh, terrific briefs. And we also uh, take note of the very large Kurdish community here in Nashville. Uh, so there's always an interest of uh, our community with what's going on in, in Kurdistan, a very important part of uh, Iraq and uh, really friendly relations with the United States. So that's next Tuesday evening at uh, 7 p.m. Uh, we also are going to be bringing a program, a special edition of our global town hall um, with uh, Kelsey Davenport, who is the director of nonproliferation policy at the um, association, uh, the uh, Dick, I'm stuck on the acronyms here. <laughs> I can't help it's you, the, Pat. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the ACA, the uh, Counterproliferation Association uh, in Washington. Pardon my uh, uh, brain drop there, but uh, Kelsey is an expert on nuclear proliferation. She's going to be talking with us about the Iranian nuclear deal and the, uh, the Biden administration's interest in returning to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. I got that one right, Dick. Uh, the JCPOA, or the Iran nuclear deal. Uh, there's, there's a real delicate timeline. The uh, Iranian parliament uh, told the, issued a law to the government that they had to uh, increase the enrichment of uranium to 20% in response to the assassination last year of their top nuclear uh, physicist. So, um, Kelsey will be with us on the 25th, a special presentation, 5.30 p.m. It's all on our calendar uh, as well. Every week at 1 p.m. on Wednesdays, we're here with the Global News Review, so uh, sign up. Um, like voting in Chicago, uh, sign up, sign up often. <laughs> um, we'll, uh, we'll be back. Uh, Austin, uh, thanks for joining us today. Great brief on uh, Myanmar. Um, any, any other comments, gentlemen? You off for the afternoon? It was a fun day again, and uh, Dick, we'll see you down at Tootsie's Orchid Lounge when we get our shots. <laughs> <laughs> All right, it sounds good. Oh, we can go. I'm right near the Bluebird Cafe too, so okay, yeah, fantastic, better, even go. better. All right, so, Every, everybody have a great day, and, and thanks for do. being with us. Well done, Austin. Thank Take you. care.